Welcome one and all to a little thing we like to call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm still Tane Kell. Tane, occasionally, you know, we find episode topics when we are researching topics for our real jobs. Yeah, you know, I used to have that happen, but not so often anymore. You know, retired life is a lot busier than I anticipated. Just not as much legal research. Yeah, yeah. Rub it in. Retired. You work as much now as you did when you were sitting on the bench. Yeah, just uh, mediating disputes for a living. You know, I kind of like that. Problem solving. Anyway. So to be more exact, today's topic arose when I was performing research on a topic. Is that better when I was performing research? on? Yes. A yeah. Well, it's more accurate anyway. Wade comes across this topic and we both thought it would be good to discuss it here on the podcast. So tell the folks what we're going to discuss today, Wade. Juror qualifications in criminal cases, specifically whether, quote unquote, police officers must automatically be disqualified. There are a bunch of cases on this topic, believe it or not. You can find those cases, at least the ones that I've cited in our episode notes on our webpage, goodjudgepod.com. And as always, folks, if you have podcast topics or ideas, please send those to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Now, with all of that being said, let's talk about juror qualifications in criminal trials. You know, Tane, there was a time when the relevant statute actually provided who is and is not qualified to sit as a juror in criminal cases. Those statutes still exist. They've just been amended over time. That's right. So, for example, OCGA section 15-12-1.1. Every time a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings. Provides for exemption, exemption from jury duty. The statute exempts certain people from jury duty and discusses the, quote, excusal process. I love that word. That's a made up word. The excusal process. The excusal process. The court has a duty to provide form affidavits for individuals requesting to be excused or deferred. And the statute provides that the following individuals are allowed to seek exemption from jury service. They are not allowed to simply ignore their summons. They are, they are allowed to seek an exemption or a deferral. So, Tane, read the list of people who, under the statute, are authorized to seek an exemption. Sure. Full-time students in post-secondary school, primary caregivers of a child under the age of six, primary teachers in a homeschool program, primary caregivers of a handicapped person, any person over the age of 70, and any person on ordered military duty or spouse of such person. Now, understand there's some additional requirements, like you have to say there's no other alternatives if you're the primary caregiver, et cetera. But we're not going to address those in detail here because that's not really our focus. Yeah. So remember now, these are statutory provisions that allow those potential jurors who qualify to seek to be excused or deferred. Over the years, Tane, most judges have heard from potential jurors who claim that they are not qualified or somehow must automatically be disqualified from jury service if they met one of those definitions. Yeah, that's not the law. They are potential excusals if the potential juror completes the required affidavit that shows that they qualify to be excused or deferred. The only quote unquote 
unqualified excusal that does not require additional affidavits to address the details, that is, that no other arrangements can reasonably be made, is for a person 70 years of age or over. In other words, you show you're over 70 and you don't have to really show well, anything Well, you still else. have to do jury service. I know, just for a little while, though. <laughs> not, not long. We told you earlier we're going to address law enforcement officers, and, and we just gave you that list, and you're going to notice specifically there was no mention of law enforcement officers on that list. So you may be asking yourself, hey, what's the deal with that? Uh-huh. So the reason that we are discussing the general exemption statute is that in prior versions of that statute, law enforcement officers were actually exempted from jury service. They just couldn't serve as a juror, criminal, civil, or otherwise. But as of 1984, that exclusion does not no longer, I guess, appears in the statute. Right. Older versions of the statute provided that full time police officers should not normally be included in the, quote, box from which jurors were selected, but could opt in by requesting that they be included. However, upon any motion to strike a full time police officer for cause, the the request should be granted. That was the way the statute was phrased. And that's what the case law cited. Yeah, you're going to note, though, that we are going to continually address full-time police officers because that distinction is important in determining whether the potential juror who is employed with a law enforcement agency must be excluded for cause. While the statute may have been altered over the years, the case law has continued to recognize that language that used to be in the statute, That, and you're going to hear that sort of play out as we go through. One of the seminal cases that addresses the fact that police officers should be excluded from criminal jury panels is a case called Hutchison versus the state. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. Hutchison and the case that followed began the analysis with an examination of what they called fundamental fairness. Those cases, Tane, recognized that there was it was simply too great a risk of potential bias or impermissible influence on the jury deliberations to allow a police officer to sit in a criminal case. Yeah, it's kind of funny, though, because you and I aren't excluded in any way, shape or form from being a juror in a criminal or a civil case. And in fact, I got called to jury duty a couple of years ago. Tell me they didn't put you on a jury. Well, it was kind of funny because it was the state court of Cobb County. So I walk in and they brought me in the courtroom for a voir dire and uh of course, I knew the judge. I mean, go back a long way. Uh, the two plaintiffs lawyers in the case had both been um, associates in the law firm that I used to work for. The defense attorney was a you know local defense attorney who was in my courtroom all the time and I knew him well. And then the plaintiff in the case I went to high school with. So <laughs> I probably wasn't going to be the best juror even setting aside the fact that I was a judge in the jurisdiction. So let me ask you this. This yes. is a serious question. Did they excuse you for cause or did they have no. to use a, use a bullet on you? Um, I think they agreed. I think both sides agreed that I could be excused for cause because neither side really wanted me to be on that jury. And I was fine with that. But I sat through the whole voir dire. I answered every general question. They didn't have a whole lot of individual questions for me. They asked me what my profession was. And I said, I worked in the judicial system. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So the cases noted that we've talked about have said about police officers have said that that potential for bias cannot be erased by mere subjective, albeit sincere, declaration by the officer that he or she can be fair and impartial as to a particular defendant's case. Yeah, it's really funny. I mean, this is more about appearances, I think, than anything, because, I mean, if you think about it, like 
if a if a victim of the same crime <laughs> that is alleged in this case says that they can be fair and impartial we kind of have to take them at their word. I mean, you can strike them for cause, but you, if if they're sincere about it, we're supposed to make the side use a peremptory strike to, to take them off. So, you know, but this is more, I think, about appearances than anything else. Absolutely. So there may exist, and this is kind of what triggered us wanting to do this episode. There may be, there may exist a misconception, Tane, as to who is actually a quote unquote police officer in this context. And you're going to you're going to recall that Tane told you we are going to re- repeatedly maybe stress maybe overstress the the phrase full-time police officer during this this episode because that's that's what the cases stress. Yeah, and we also want to stress that full-time police officers are not quote ineligible to serve. They merely must be excused for cause upon motion by any party. Now this is a criminal case. So right. that's not that's not that is not true in a civil case. That is correct. But, but if you're going to be candid, the cases kind of use the word disqualified or disqualification pretty interchangeably with the words can be excused or must be excused, strike for cause, those sorts of phrases. So if you say full time police officers are disqualified from serving in a criminal case, there are plenty of Georgia cases that use that same phrasing. Just understand that's really not correct. It's really must be excused upon a motion from either party, because quite frankly, the prosecution may want to excuse them for some reason. Sure. Some of the cases even went further when attempting to define exactly who qualifies as a full-time police officer in this context. The cases expanded the definition to full-time police officers with arrest powers. Now, because that's a bunch of words, we're going to use the phrase full-time police officer in the following discussion. Just understand that the arrest powers part may prove to be a useful clarification during voir dire if that becomes relevant to your case. So the the direction to excuse police officer for cause upon a motion of either party does not apply to former police officers who are retired or, or, or people who are retired who no longer have arrest powers. Right. It does not apply to sworn deputies, for example, who only work part time as auxiliary officers. The disqualification does not apply to radio operators for police department or a sheriff's office. Right. The 911 dispatchers and people like that, for example. It also doesn't apply to individuals employed by the GBI who work with, for example, GCIC, the Georgia Crime Information Center, or instructors who teach law enforcement officers. The rule also does not apply to corrections officers who do not have arrest powers outside of their facility. That's right. The rule also does not apply to driver's license examiners. So even where the victim was employed with the Department of Corrections, that fact, and this is a case site in the in the outline, the fact that that potential juror was also employed with the Department of, of Corrections. In other words, if the victim was Department of Corrections and the potential juror's Department of Corrections, that is not a blanket disqualification. Right. If the, the potential juror says, no, I can be fair and impartial. The rule also does not apply to a potential juror who holds a certification as a Georgia peace officer, but who is not working as a full-time police officer. I mean, you know, there could be somebody out there who hasn't gotten a job yet after graduating from the or academy. Or decided to go to a different field. Exactly. Maybe wanted to be a firefighter. You know, there are a lot of those guys seem to swap back and forth sometimes. And so, they yeah. Do. Yeah. The rule also does not apply to forensic uh, experts employed by the Georgia Crime Lab. 
There's only like two of those, aren't there? <laughs> There's a bunch. <laughs> yeah. But it is, and understand this, it is reversible error to refuse to strike for cause a potential juror who is a state patrolman or any other full-time police officer upon motion of, of a party. It makes no difference whether the potential juror is employed with the law enforcement office or department involved in the underlying case or whether that potential juror had any involvement with the investigation. Full-time police officers with their best powers must be struck for cause upon motion of either party. If you can kind of walk away with that, you, our episode, we, we've done good. Yeah, that's our that's our phrase that pays today. Now, over time, Tane, you and I both have seen... Um, lawyers and judges who really misunderstood this whole rule and the whole, the, the term police officer in relation to jury service. And they believe that anyone employed in any kind of law enforcement capacity or even tangentially crossing guard, anything like that. I mean, if you were flagman, a secretary flagman the, on the highway, yeah, <laughs> that they had to be excused for cause. And, and as noted, noted above, that's simply not the law. That's right. The cases specifically note that while the principle announced in that Hutchison case remains valid law, uh, the courts have said we have refused to extend the automatic disqualification rule in Hutchison to those less connected with law enforcement than full time police officers. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. All of the prior discussion Tane, sort of presumes one point that we need to make clear. The potential juror in each of those cases cited previously stated that their their employment would not impact their ability to be a fair and impartial juror and that their employment would not influence their deliberations. Understand if the potential set the potential juror for whatever reason says they can't be fair and impartial, that's a that's they can be excused for cause. Right. And it has nothing to do with law enforcement. Yeah, so that same rule, that same rule applies to every juror. If Correct. they say they can't be impartial, then they get struck for cause anyway. But but it certainly applies to peace officers as well. So what we're talking about, all these cases that have come up and have gone up to the appellate ranks, they have all been law enforcement officers that said, but despite my employment, I can be fair and impartial. Even if they say they can be fair and impartial. Upon a motion from either party, you have to strike them for cause in a criminal case. Right. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Now, we, we hope that you're completely clear on the difference between this blanket disqualification, which applies to, quote, full time police officers upon motion again, and a four cause challenge that is the product of bias any potential juror has, regardless of his or her employment. So let me let me just one more time. 
if the police officer says that they can be fair and impartial, just like any other Gerard says, even even despite the fact that they're a full time police officer and no one makes the motion. Okay, so they're still potentially in the jury pool to be considered. But they say something about not being able to be fair and impartial. They can still be struck just like any other juror. And all of those other rules that you would use to consider a juror and whether they should be disqualified would apply just the same. And if it's a full time police officer, even if they do say they can be fair and impartial, if someone upon makes a motion, motion for either party, they're out. Yeah, they're gone. They're gone. All right. Typically, when asking the basic qualification questions in a voir dire panel, I will ask as a judge whether there's anyone in the panel who is a full-time police officer with arrest powers or whether anyone is post-certified a peace officer standards and training council certified with arrest powers. Although I realize that post-certified is not exactly, that, that doesn't adequately identify all the potential strikes. If a full-time police officer identifies himself or herself during the Vordire process, the, the sort of the general questions, I will ask the lawyers if they wish to ask that potential juror any questions. Nine times out of ten, one of them will say, no, judge, I want to, I think they, they, they should be excused for cause. There's my motion. We're done. They're out. See you next week. See you. You're go, to, go downstairs. There might yeah. be a civil case that needs exactly. you. Thank you very much. But so they're out. But I, I'll be honest with you. The lawyers will usually say, "Judge, we'd ask they be dismissed." That sure, just sounds better than strike. We yeah. said they'd be stricken. <laughs> you know, bring him up here, and I'll slap him with a glove. <laughs> the reason this issue arose recently, and why I needed to do some research, it probably bears some discussion today, Tame, because it was a little bit off the beaten path. A jailer at our local jail recently expressed some concern offline and through the sheriff, not during the Vordar process about having to reveal his personal data as a part of being a potential juror. Mm -hmm. So he believed incorrectly, I think, that he was, quote, immune from being a juror in a criminal case. That's not true. Right. And I think a lot of I think a lot of peace officers or police officers believe that, that they are automatically disqualified no matter what. So. The bigger issue he raised and the one that has caused me to do some work in our circuit, and and I know y'all have done some with this when you were back when you were judging as well, the fact that his name, his home address, et cetera, was all included in the information packets that were handed out during Vordar. He was like, look, the guy on trial is, he could come at me. He's in my jail. Yeah, he's in my jail. Now he has my home address and knows how many kids I have and what my spouse does for a living. I mean. That ain't cool. And I was like, good point. I don't know always how to get around that. So I'm not surely sure how we're going to address it in the Columbia circuit. Given that the person on trial was presently incarcerated in our local jail and had easy access to the jailer's personal data, that seems problematic. That seems legitimate. No, I, I agree with you. And I mean, you know, that issue came up on a recent grand jury that some people have heard about and that where personal information about the grand jurors was leaked to the public. And, you know, it's it's potentially available out there. And and, and it's and, not like the jailer's information no. may not be available on Google. I mean, I don't know yeah, about but, that. But 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 giving it to them in the trial to a, yeah, yeah. to a to and, a person who yeah. is currently incarcerated in that same jail. Yeah. Seems a, a bit problematic. At that I point, Tane, 
raised by the potential juror was on the heels of me sentencing a former jailer, law enforcement officer, who had entered a guilty plea to providing contraband to the inmates in violation of oath of office. Whether it's true or not, he claimed that he was threatened with harm or harm to his family by an inmate who recited to him his home address, his, his home phone number, where he lived, et cetera. Instead of reporting that incident, that particular officer decided to go along with the, become basically become a co-conspirator in getting contraband into the jail. So he got prosecuted, et cetera, fired, of course. But it sort of rang what the, what the potential juror is saying is ringing in my ears on the heels of the sentencing of an officer sure. who had found themselves in that situation. Do you, how do y'all, when you were in Cobb, do you remember how, it's been a long time, <laughs> how, do you remember how you would handle the personal information of someone who was in that role? You mean in a juror role? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'll be really honest with you. We gave so little information to the lawyers and the defendants and the you know, plaintiffs and prosecutors and all of them in a case about potential jurors. I mean, essentially, they got their name. They got the city they lived in, you know, Marietta, Smyrna, whatever it was in Cobb County. They got the general category under which, you know, their job fell, like, you know, legal profession or, you know, office manager. Did or they something. check boxes or? Yes. I think it was a, it was like a broad categories and they would check. Many of them were left blank. I mean, probably 50% or more left blank. And, and that was basically it. I mean, not even information about number of children or spat, whether they were married or any of those things, they got very little information. The, the information that was provided came in the courtroom when they were asked, uh, you know, the questions. And the first thing I did in the courtroom was ask each juror to stand up one by one and say what their profession was, what their marital status was, how many children they had and what their ages were and what area of the county they lived in. But like we didn't provide the addresses of the potential jurors or those sorts of things to counsel when they received the, the, the jury list. As a result of this, I actually reached out to Cobb County mm -hmm. and said, cause I knew y'all had some things about this. And so mm -hmm. I asked them, how do you do it? And they actually said that jurors receive instructions to go online mm -hmm. and Correct. to fill out a document online that becomes the printed document that you put out. So Think about it this. The the clerk, of course, needs the home address to send the juror their $25 or whatever. Right. But that doesn't necessarily need to come to the defendants. And right. so you could do online what you can't do on a form. So in other words, online, you could have a series of checkboxes that say, we live in this general area, downtown Marietta, East Cobb, right. things that maybe aren't cities that give people, sorry, give people ideas for where they live in the county. Right. But they don't necessarily give their street addresses. Admittedly, the clerks will need that. But for people like us, that's not what we've traditionally done because the clerk needs the address to send the check. So the clerk just simply they cuts just print it all out and, and they just print out right. that information, but they right. keep the information to do the checks and all. Right. And, and one of the things, you know, that, that we never, I never really told the jurors, you know, but that is true is if somebody asked under an open records act request for the information that's collected for jurors, the data, they are probably entitled to it. 
name addresses, name addresses, phone numbers, all of those things, because it's all part of the county database that's used to select the juries. And so anyway, um, that's something we may want to think about is something the legislature may want to think about in the future to give a little bit more protection to people who are coming in to fulfill their civic duty to do jury service. So that's all we have for today's discussion on jury qualification. Sorry if this is a short episode, but we wanted to to address this issue and, and sort of plant some of those seeds for future thought. But this all deals with criminal cases and police officers, full-time police officers as potential jurors. That's right. So remember that phrase, full-time police officer with arrest powers. That's probably going to answer uh, any question that you might have as to whether the potential juror must be excluded if a motion is made for cause. Not everyone who has ever worked for a law enforcement agency in any sort of role is disqualified, despite what people will say to you. The parties may choose to strike that person with a peremptory challenge, and that's always their prerogative, but it may not be a for-cause strike if the potential juror indicates he or she can be a fair and impartial, despite their a fair and impartial juror, despite their employment. Folks, send us your thoughts and ideas at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. This episode outline is available on goodjudgepod.com. And now, folks, the music trivia, which is the portion I know all of you come here for. You know, we really should have kept track of the music topics we've covered because we may end up overlapping some uh, after a while. But anyway, today's music trivia topic is one hit wonders, one of our favorite uh, things. I'm going to put my hand over this because I'm going to try to guess some of these. Embarrassingly, there were a bunch of one hit wonders in the 80s and 90s. Boy, were there. (laughs) What was the name of the band that sang that little earwig, that little earworm that bored into our head? Safety dance. I'm pretty sure I know this one. There is a hint right behind it, so you can read okay. the next one. The answer is not Devo. I know that. I think it's Men Without Hats. Men Without Hats. Yes. How do I remember? That's so bad. Um, they must have spent days trying to come up with that name for their band. What a really, really great name that is. All right. Another question from the 1980s. Come on, Eileen. What's, oh, my God. That song will now be in my Come head. Come on, for, lean, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, another earworm that's different from most 1980 pop hits. Um, because instead of synthesizers, it had banjo, accordion, and fiddles featured in the song. Yes, indeed it did. Um, so who sang the number one hit song, Come On, Eileen? Oh, my gosh. It's right on the tip of my tongue. Um, I give up. Uh, no, it wasn't on the tip of my tongue. That was a totally different thing. It was Dexy's Midnight Runners. Who remember, remember the video with everybody? Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, Overall, yes. So weird. Uh, jump to the 1990s and the one-hit wonders from that decade. Prince loaned a song to a female singer who gained international notoriety for all of the wrong reasons and who recently passed away. R.I.P. Um, the song began with the line. It's been seven hours and 15 days. Who sang that song? Come on, folks. You got to remember this. Do you remember? Yeah. Okay. Sinead O'Connor. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a Prince song. A lot of people didn't realize that. What's the name of the, the song? name of the song was nothing compares to you with a two, with a two and, and a U. U. Yeah, yeah, because that's a Prince, Prince song. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, not to be confused with you too. It's to you, yeah, not right. you too. And then finally, a famous hit included the verse. I get down, but I get up again. Never going to hit me down and I get knocked down. But I, it's, it's I get knocked down, not I get down. 
I get knocked down. So anyway, oh, yeah. and the band had a unique name. Do you remember what that name was? If you come up with this, I will buy you lunch. Chumba Wumba. Wow. You owe me lunch, bro. I owe you lunch. <laughs> Chumba Wumba. Now, here's the hard part of the question. Yeah. Tell them the hard part. The hard part of the question is, what was the name of that song? It's not. It's not I Get Knocked Down, which is what it seems like it ought to be. I bet you don't get this. You want to go double or nothing? Too no, much no, I don't want to go double or nothing because I know I'm not going to get this. Um, I'm going to guess Bob O'Reilly. No, <laughs> no that's not correct. Uh, let's see. Tub thumping. Yep. Wow. I don't even remember that. So, um, all right. And, uh, you know, folks, we're just full of useless information here on the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm going to ask you a trivia question. Remember the band in the 1980s named Wang Chung? Wang Chung. Remember everybody, that? Everybody Wang Chung yeah, tonight. Yeah. Do you know what Wang Chung is? A combination at the local restaurant. No. Wang Chung is actually the downward and upward stroke on a guitar. One is the Wang and the other one is the Chung. Hey, according to what language? Uh, it's guitar lingo, man. Yeah, the so, Wang and the Chung. So you're telling me that that guitar is like like Eric Clapton's going to know Wang Chung? Yeah, he's going to know that down is the Wang and up is the Chung or vice versa. I don't know which is which. All right, folks, we're full of useless information, as I said, here on the Good Judgment Podcast. But golly, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be a, have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>